John chapter 12, and as we prepare to think about what we have here before us in our text that's been read, let me just uh, say there's a song we used to sing when I was a, a boy. Uh, it's been a few years now. but uh, And we don't have this song in our hymn book. But uh, it's a wonderful song, and I'd like to sing it, and maybe uh, a little later on in the song you can help me with it as well. But uh, I remember growing up with uh, a, a song book in, called Inspiring Hymns. That's the book I grew up with, and, and many of you are familiar with it. But it has this song, and plus I think you can find a number of other old song books as well, but it's entitled um, Jesus Never Fails. Jesus Never Fails. Earthly friends may prove untrue, doubts and fears assail. One still loves and cares for you, one who will not fail. Jesus never fails, Jesus never fails. Heaven and earth may pass away, but Jesus never fails. Though the sky be dark and drear, fierce and strong the gale, just remember He is near, and He will not fail. Everyone's singing, Jesus never fails, Jesus never fails, heaven and earth may pass away, but Jesus never fails. In life's dark and bitter hour, love will still prevail. Trust is everlasting power, Jesus will not fail. Jesus never fails, Jesus never fails. Heaven and earth may pass away, but Jesus never fails. Well, I thank you for helping me sing that song this morning. It's a wonderful reminder. It tells us that Jesus is always trustworthy. He's always consistent in his faithfulness toward us. And indeed, I believe Jesus never fails. Now, now if we're going to honestly evaluate Jesus' ministry to this point in the Gospel of John, we might wonder, has Jesus failed in his ministry? You know, the picture John gives us just a few days before Jesus' crucifixion is rather dismal. Now, granted, he has a few faithful followers here and there. But you know what? Even the twelve were not solid, were they? Uh, Judas would soon betray him. 
Peter would deny him. All of them would desert him in his hour of need. Thomas, at first, would doubt Jesus' resurrection, and they didn't seem to be a very promising group to which to entrust the entire future of the faith. But as we see here in our text this morning in John chapter 12, and particularly in verses 42 and verse 43, there are a few of the Jewish leaders who profess to believe in Jesus, but they're afraid to take a public stand for him. Uh, The majority of the Jewish leaders were intent on killing Jesus. Most of the Jewish people would not commit themselves to Christ because they would fear being excommunicated. And besides, they wanted a political Messiah who would deliver them from Rome, and Jesus didn't seem to fit the bill. So as John ends this long section and has shown a mounting opposition to Jesus, we may wonder, did Jesus fail in his ministry. If not, why didn't Jews accept Jesus as their Messiah? For that matter, why haven't most people down through history believed in Jesus as Savior and as Lord? Well, the question of why most Jews in Jesus' day and most Jews down through history have rejected Jesus as Messiah probably isn't something that's keeping you awake at night, is it? We're used to the fact that Christianity consists mostly of Gentiles. But all, but to the apostles who were, who were Jewish, that was a big concern. It threatened the credibility of who Jesus claimed to be. The man that they were following, the one who they were following, it really was a threat to his credibility. And they lived in the light of Old Testament prophecies. They knew that Jews were God's chosen people, that God would send a Messiah to bless them. And they also believed that Jesus was the promised Messiah. But if that was true, then why didn't Israel welcome Jesus joyfully? Why did they not only reject Jesus? but consent to his crucifixion? Why were more Gentiles than Jews responding favorably to the gospel? Now, these questions caused the Apostle Paul great heaviness and continual sorrow, it says in Romans chapter 9, verse 2. And he devotes chapters 9 of Romans, the book of Romans uh, chapter 9 through 11, to answer the question, why Israel had rejected Jesus. If you go back there and you study that, you'll find that in his answer, he emphasizes God's sovereignty even over people's hardness of heart to show that the human sin cannot thwart God's purpose in Romans chapter 9. He also, uh, uh, God always accomplishes his will. Paul emphasized human responsibility, both our responsibility to preach the gospel and to reach uh, sinners, And then also the sinner's responsibility to to respond to it in chapter 10. He concluded that a partial judicial hardening had happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles had come in, and then God would fulfill his promises to Israel in Romans chapter 11. But our text here is John's contribution to the difficult question of why the Jews rejected Jesus as their Messiah. John's answer is not as complete as Paul's, but like Paul, he emphasizes God's sovereignty and human responsibility. 
And he shows us that human sin never derails God's sovereign purposes. But at the same time, people are responsible for their sin, and they will be judged if they refuse to believe in God. Now, Jesus, or John's message here is that people do not believe in Jesus because they reject the light that God has given them that results in God judicially blinding them, and yet some of will see the glory of Jesus, and they'll believe. We're going to divide this section into four parts. First of all, some reject the light. Some reject the light. Are there people today that reject the light? Well, you don't have to go very far to find people that reject Jesus Christ. You can go sometimes in your own families, your own neighborhood, your own community, and you certainly see the rejection of Jesus Christ on the news almost every day. People do not believe in Jesus because they reject the light that he has given them. Look at verse 36 again. It says, While ye have light, believe in the light, that ye may be the children of the light. These things spake Jesus and departed and did hide himself from them. Now, Jesus is the light of the world. We saw that back in chapter 8 and verse 12. Uh, He exhorted the Jews to believe in him as the light while they had the opportunity. But then, realizing their determination to reject and kill him, Jesus went away and hid himself from them. Now, we don't know where he went, and perhaps it was Bethany. Uh, Maybe he went to stay with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. We don't know that. We're not told. But his departure would symbolize the judicial judgment that was to fall upon Israel. It was a prophetic drama acted out to say to Israel, If you reject me, I will withdraw from you and you will not have the light among you. And so hiding himself reflects the truth that John has repeatedly shown us here, that Jesus would die in accordance with the Father's timetable, not whenever the Jews wanted to kill him. His death would be at Passover because he's the Lamb of God. And then if you look on in verse 37, he adds his commentary here. John has presented seven miracles or signs that Jesus has performed. But though he has done many miracles before them, yet they believe not on him. We see that Jesus turned the water into wine in John chapter 2. Healed the royal official's son in John chapter 4. Healed the lame man by the pool of Bethesda in John chapter 5. Fed the 5,000 in John chapter 6. Walked on water in John chapter 6. Opened the eyes of a man born blind in John chapter 9. And then raised Lazarus from the dead in John chapter 11. But again, I remind you of John chapter 20 and verse 30, where it states that there are many other signs that Jesus performed, which were not written in this gospel. But the ones that he did write about should have been more than sufficient to lead people to believe. And yet, for the most part, the Jews did not believe. But why would people reject Jesus as the light that God gave them? Especially when that light was authenticated by these powerful miracles. I mean, surely if you saw seven miracles like these people all saw, 
you would say, this has got to be the Messiah. This has got to be Jesus, the Son of God. Well, John chapter 3, verse 19 and 20 answers that question. And this is the condemnation that light is come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. For everyone that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. Listen, people reject God's light because they love their sin. Paul said a similar thing in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 21. And he shows there that God was clearly revealed uh, in his eternal power and divine nature through creation. And yet people suppress the truth in unrighteousness. They want to hold on to their sins. So they hold down the truth of God as the mighty creator. And they believe in ridiculous myths like evolution so they can continue on in their sins. You see, that's the reason why they promote evolution. It's so they can continue in their sin. And this repeats the truth I've mentioned before, that when people reject Christ, usually their main need is not to get their theological questions answered, but rather to repent of their sin. So we may ask the skeptic, are you saying that if I can give you a reasonable answer to this question, you would put your trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior? And the one who is suppressing the truth will invariably reply, oh yeah, but I have a lot of other questions too. You see, he's not really looking for answers. He's rejecting the light that God has given him. And these verses here in chapter 12, verses 36 and 37 especially, focus on the human responsibility for unbelief. People do not believe in Jesus because they reject the light of God that has been given to them, and they reject the light because they love their sin. And that leads us to something rather scary, I think. And that is, some judicially are blinded even more. If people reject the light that God has given them, He will judicially blind them even more. Look again at verse 38. That the saying of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spake, Lord, who hath believed our report? To whom hath the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe, because Isaiah said again, He hath blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, that they should not see with their eyes, nor understand with their heart, and be converted, and I should heal them. Verse 40, and, and it goes on, or... We'll stop there. Uh, but he, he cites Isaiah here. This is a, a, some quotations from the book of Isaiah. Uh, Isaiah chapter 53 and then Isaiah 6. Uh, John makes two startling claims here. The, the Jews' rejection of Jesus was in order to fulfill prophecy. And then the Jews were incapable of believing because God had blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts. Uh, there is a third startling claim uh, for the liberal critics uh, that say, well, Isaiah didn't write all of Isaiah. You know, I don't know if you've ever heard that before, but that is a, a claim by some of the liberal theologians. You know, Isaiah didn't really write all of that. Uh, the first quote comes from the so-called second I Isaiah. And while the second quote comes from the first Isaiah, but John here says, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that Isaiah wrote both 
quotes, and so Isaiah wrote all of Isaiah. But to go back to John's first two claims that the Jews' rejection of Jesus was in order to fulfill prophecy and that they were incapable of believing because God had blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, John is saying that the Jews' unbelief was not only foreseen by Scripture, but on that very account necessitated by Scripture. And further, the cause of their final unbelieving rejection of Jesus was that God had judicially blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts so they could not believe. And because the Jews would not believe, God judicially blinded them so that they could not. By the way, Jesus cited the same text here, Isaiah 6, 9 through 10, to explain why he spoke to the multitudes in parables. And Paul quoted the same verses to the unbelieving Jews who visited him in Rome to justify why he had turned to the Gentiles. And so John's first quote here from Isaiah 53 and verse 1, who says, Who hath believed our report, and to whom is the Lord uh, arm of the Lord revealed? That's in context of Isaiah's prophecy of the suffering servant who, like a lamb, was led to the slaughter, who would bear the sins of his people. And the arm of the Lord refers to his mighty power. Now you would think that everyone who saw a miracle would believe. But John says that the arm of the Lord must be revealed. If God doesn't open people's eyes, they will not see Jesus' miracles and how that they authenticate him as God's Messiah. They will explain them away by natural means. And we have people doing the same thing today. They're explaining the spiritual things away by natural means. And that reveals the condition of people in their fallen sin. As it says in Ephesians uh, chapter 4 and verse 18, having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart. Same thing happened when Moses led Israel out of bondage uh, in, in Egypt as God performed mighty miracles. You would think the Jews would have seen the plagues in Egypt, the parting of the Red Sea, the pillar of the cloud and fire, the provision of water and manna in the wilderness, and many other miracles. They would have seen those as mighty manifestations of God's mighty power. But as Moses said in Deuteronomy 29, And Moses called unto all of Israel and said unto them, Ye have seen that all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt unto Pharaoh and unto all the servants and unto all his land, the great temptations which thine eyes have seen, the signs and those great miracles. Yet the Lord hath not given you a heart to perceive and eyes to see and ears to hear unto this day. The arm of the Lord must be revealed. People are spiritually blind unless God opens their eyes. So in John chapter 12, the idea is that in spite of the many mighty miracles that Jesus performed, people will not believe in him as their Messiah because he didn't fit their expectation. They were looking for a mighty conquering political Messiah. But Isaiah 53 2 and 3 says, For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, as a root out of dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness, 
And when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we shall desire him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. And since Jesus didn't fit the Jews' expectation of their Messiah, they rejected him, even though he had performed so many signs before them. Now, there is an application for us. You say, I hope you get to that pastor, because I don't quite understand all of that. It's kind of heavy, but there is an application, especially for those who have believed. At some point, Jesus probably doesn't fit your expectation of what you thought he would be when you trusted him as your Savior. You may have thought, well, you know, if I trust Christ as my Savior, he's going to fix all my problems. Anybody else here have problems? Well, we all have problems, right? Well, if we trust Christ, he's going to fix all that for us. Well, maybe you expected him to save everybody in your family. Maybe he, you expected Jesus to resolve all your family conflicts. Has that happened? No, instead, your family members have hardened themselves in unbelief. Some of your family members have said, oh, I don't want to hear that religious stuff. I don't want to hear that. Don't talk to me about Jesus. And I know some of you have had that happen. And they oppose you because you believe. So be careful not to fall away from Jesus when he doesn't fit your expectation. I think there are four things to keep in mind here. Number one, God's authority in these manners is never pitted against human responsibility. The Bible often puts God's authority and human responsibility side by side. In Acts chapter 4, verse 27 and 28, it says there, For a truth against thy holy child Jesus, thou hast anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles, and the people of Israel were gathered together for to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determined before to, do, to be done. You see, God determined that there's going to be a cross. He predetermined that. And those who would kill Jesus are going to be responsible for their sins. And in a way, we cannot understand God has authority over evil, and yet he's never responsible for it. So keep that in mind. But also, secondly, keep God's judicial hardening is never the impulsive operation of randomness toward morally neutral or good people but rather it's his holy condemnation of guilty people who are condemned to the judgment that they themselves have chosen. There are many examples of this in the Bible. We won't take time to look at them this morning. But then thirdly, God's authority in these matters is actually a cause for hope. He is, if he is not supreme over evil people, then there isn't much point of us praying for him to do something about the evil. But if God truly reigns, then we can rejoice. And then fourthly, keep in mind that God's hardening of people in Isaiah's day was so that Isaiah, who was commissioned to apparently a fruitless ministry, was setting a stage in God's extraordinary work, the extraordinary work that was going to bring about, ultimately, the redemptive purposes to pass. You see, the application is that the unbelief and the evil deeds of sinner never frustrates the processes of, or the purposes of God. 
but actually fulfill his purposes. You know, when we see evil all around us in this world today, oh no, what are we going to do? And we wring our hands and we say, oh no, what's going to happen? God's still at work. God's going to use this for his glory. Now, the evil deeds of sinners never frustrate the purposes of God. They actually fulfill his purposes. Now, many details in the book of Revelation are hard to understand. I understand that. But one clear point is that even though there's a worldwide evil and deception of the Antichrist, it still fits into God's purpose for the ages. And like those who killed Jesus, the Antichrist will only do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determined before to be done. You know, when God will judge him and cast him into the lake of fire, and to the church in Revelation chapter 2 and verse 10, the Lord commands, Fear none of these things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall be cast of you into prison, that ye may be tried, and ye shall have tribulation ten days, and be faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. And so, as we've seen that people who do not believe Jesus, because they reject the light that God has given them, and resulting in God's judicially blinding them even more, in the next three verses we see that some see Jesus' glory, and they believe in him whereas others profess to believe, but their focus is not on Jesus' glory. So notice, thirdly, some are enabled to see Christ's glory. Look at verse 41. Verse 41 says, These things said Isaiah when he saw his glory and spake of him. Now that's a remarkable statement there. John is probably referring to Isaiah 53, where Isaiah saw Jesus' glory as the suffering servant. And then also to Isaiah 6, where Isaiah saw the God in glory on his throne. John is saying that Isaiah saw the Jews of Jesus' day, what they had missed, namely that he would be glorified by his suffering for our sins. And he also would be the exalted one whom Isaiah saw high and lifted up in Isaiah 6. But the remarkable thing is that John identifies Jesus as the Lord on his throne. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse uh, 4 and, the, and 6, Paul writes, In whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. For God, in verse 6, who for God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness has shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Paul's saying that Satan has blinded unbelievers so that they cannot see the glory of Christ. But when we believe, it's because God has shown in our hearts to reveal his glory in Christ. And tying in with John, Isaiah has granted a vi- was granted a vision of Jesus' glory. And while our vision of his glory will not compare to Isaiah's vision, or even John's vision in Revelations, or Paul's in 2 Corinthians, the beginning of faith is when God opens our eyes to see something of Jesus' glory. God works in your heart. And you begin to see Jesus' glory. And when you see his glory on the cross... 
You believe in him for eternal life. But there's one sticky matter left in our text here. And that is some focus on the glory of man, but not God. Look at verse 42. Nevertheless, nevertheless, among the chief rulers also many believed on him, but because of the Pharisees they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. The sticky issue is that whether John is describing true believers or not. Now, some would say, well, they're believers. uh, And they would argue, well, John's probably talking about guys like um, Nicodemus and Joseph Joseph of Arimathea. They were kind of secret believers. They were thought to be. They were secret because they feared the Jews. And they would uh, say that they were saved, although their faith was defective. Others would contend that while these rulers later may have come to a saving faith, at this point John is describing men who are not yet saved. And we saw this non-saving belief back in John chapter 2, where many believed in Jesus, but he did not trust himself to them. And these verses set the stage for Jesus' interview with Nicodemus. And we saw the same thing in John chapter 8, where John says that the Jews believed in Jesus, but clearly did not believe in a saving way. And John's comment here about these men loving the approval of men, not of God, goes back to John chapter 5 and verse 44, where Jesus asked his opponents, How can ye believe which receive honor one of another, and seek not the honor that cometh from God only? We find here in verse 43, they love the praise of men more than the praise of God. That word praise is very important here. It means glory. It's very similar to verse 23, where it says, And Jesus said, Unto them the hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. That word glorified in the praise here, very similar. Verse 28, where it says, Father, glorify thy name. Verse 41, he saw his glory. Those words there are very similar. And you add to that Jesus' words in Mark 8, 38. Whosoever therefore shall be ashamed of me and my words... In this adulterous and sinful generation of him shall the Son of Man be ashamed when he cometh in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. These Pharisees would not confess Jesus because they feared being put out of the synagogue and they loved man's glory over God's glory. Unless they later become willing to confess Christ, whatever the cost, I don't believe their faith was saving faith. But why does John include that here in verse 42 and 43? Well, maybe it's to warn those who say they believe, but they're afraid to confess Christ. Could that be someone here this morning? You say you believe, but you're afraid to say it to anybody. You see, he wants us to see the true faith in Jesus' glory and confess him no matter what the cost. Yeah, but people are going to make fun of me. People are going to persecute me. People are going to say, I don't want to hear it. Are you willing to take that? 
true Christians are not ashamed to confess Christ before this adulterous and sinful generation. You know, we can get man's approval, but man's approval doesn't last very long. God's approval lasts forever. Let me just close with these four applications. A question, first of all, are you obeying the light that God has given you? And, or could you be suppressing the truth because you love your sin? This is the danger, both for those who haven't trusted in Christ and those who have. It's easy to dodge the truths of Scripture and uh, that confront your sin. But in doing so, you will stymie your growth as a believer. Secondly, are you trusting the Lord even when He does things that don't fit your expectations? Say, Evil men may wrong you, but God's purpose will prevail. And then thirdly, when you share Christ, pray that God would open blind eyes. One of the greatest prayers you can pray as you go to witness to a family member or a neighbor, someone here in the community, ask God to open their eyes so they can see the truth here. People are blinded. Apart from His grace, the human heart is blind. It's hard. Because salvation is from the Lord. It's not from you. It's not from me. It's not from anything we might do or say. It's from God. And then if you have not believed, if you're here this morning, you have not believed uh, in Jesus to save you from your sins, don't blame God. You need to cry out to God to open your eyes. To the glory of Jesus, who was crucified for your sin. And beg God to give you saving faith. I trust that we'll realize in the day in which we live, there's a lot of blindness out there, isn't there? A lot of hard hearts. And we need to pray that God would open their eyes. But then we've got to give them something to see. We've got to give them the word. We've got to give them the gospel. And I trust that God will enable us to see people coming to Christ as he opens their eyes to the wonderful truth that we believe in. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you.